Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest Mark Leverage Magic podcast, this one being for July 2022. And whether you're listening to this in the garden or in your home or on holiday or in the car, you are very welcome. Actually, as I'm looking out of the window at the moment recording this, I can uh, see blue skies and it's a beautiful summer's day. So I guess it kind of shows the, the lengths and the dedication I'm prepared to go to in order to, to record a podcast for you to listen to when really I ought to be outside drinking a glass of wine or having a cup of coffee in the garden rather than being inside doing this. However, I'm thrilled to be able to say that I've collected together some what I hope will be interesting topics to chat to you about. And I'm going to start by thinking about sort of into the future in a way, because it occurred to me the other day, I was thinking about, I wonder what the next big thing for magic is going to be. I don't mean in terms of tricks, I mean in terms of technology that will enable us to do certain things in magic. I mean, if you think about it, in the last 20 to 25 years, there's been an absolutely huge sea change in technology, which has affected, of course, naturally enough, all of our ordinary lives, but which has also affected our magic lives too. Those of you who've been around long enough and involved in magic long enough will remember the days when if you bought a magic trick, the best you could expect was a bit of badly typed or badly photocopied uh, instruction sheet giving some skimpy instructions that left you actually most of the time needing to work out how the trick worked almost on your own. And you think about how suddenly people realise that actually you could film it and then you could put it onto a VHS videotape. And you know when those videotapes first came out it was revolutionary and everybody jumped on the bandwagon and some of the the tapes, in fact nearly all of them initially, were unbelievably expensive, relatively speaking, compared to the cost of other things in Magic. 30, 35, 40 pounds for um, a video was very common. And that's not in today's money, remember, that is 25 years ago. So that was quite a sea change. And then, of course, it went from there. Suddenly DVDs came along. So stuff was put onto DVDs, much smaller format, easier to carry around, longer lasting, less liable to go wrong or get tangled like the VHS tapes did. But even that didn't last very long, did it? Because next thing you know, we got to where we are now, where the internet being all prevalent, of course, most, most people download their instructions or watch a streaming version of video on their computers, laptops, phones, or whatever it might be. So that's when you think that in about that's all happened in about 20 years. That's quite a few formatted where different formats that we've had to get to come to terms with and get into our our magic library, if you like, in order to be able to watch instructions and other DVD content. And then you think about Internet selling. Uh, I, I can remember writing a, one of my chatter columns and saying, looking ahead, a bit like I'm doing now and saying, well, it's not going to be long before you'll be able to see Dems on your computer and you'll be able to choose magic completely online. And at the time, that seemed quite not far fetched because you could see it was coming, but it wasn't anywhere near uh, about to happen. It was it was still quite a few years before it actually did happen. But it did, of course. Um, now you think about today when we have virtual lectures, virtual events using Zoom and other platforms for connecting people on the internet, 
but not in quite the same way as had been done previously, where you just sat and watched something. Now it was very interactive. So what is going to be the next big thing? I wondered whether virtual reality is the next stage of all of this. Are we going to have instructions or, for that matter, events, meetings, get-togethers, where everybody is wearing a virtual reality headset, we're all connected to the internet, and it, so it feels like we're all in a room together. And so you'll be sitting at home and you'll be showing people tricks and it will, they will be apparently sitting opposite you. Uh, I'm sure that that must be possible now, even if the bandwidth was there and if people had the right equipment. Uh, but certainly this might become something that's quite common. And you can imagine get togethers, small events where let's say 20 or 30 people are all with virtual reality headsets on, all joining in, but all actually physically spread all over the world. It's another move on from the, the Zoom type of experience, isn't it? And what about some holograms? I mean, another extension of that, I suppose. Hologram performances, a bit Star Wars-esque, where a beam of light is shone in into the middle of a room. And you as the performer, you're not actually there, but you appear to be there. People can sit all the way around you and get a 365 degree view of the magic you're performing, but you're not actually there. Is that a possibility in the near future? And what about instructions? You know, you go to a convention and you buy a product at the moment. You take away something, whether it's the props, the instructions you come as a perhaps a URL to get you online. Isn't it only a matter of time before people say, oh, just give us your phone and they just touch something to your phone and instantly your phone has all the information, all the video and instructions that you need. Again, probably possible right now. Maybe some people are even doing that right now, but it's it's not prevalent at the moment. So I think it's really interesting. And, and I don't like none of us can absolutely 100 percent say where what, what direction things will go. And sometimes these it's market forces that makes it. Um, go off in a particular direction and of course sometimes it's just the technology itself it becomes possible so we end up doing it but when you think of how much for instance our mobile phones have become central to our lives that was unimaginable 20-25 years ago well I wonder in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years how magic is going to look to those people who, uh, who are around to enjoy it at that time There's a sort of subsection of magic, which most of us involved in the art will know and recognize as street magic. And dealers sell effects that are said to be ideal for street magic performance. And I've often thought to myself, does street magic actually exist? Or is it simply something that dealers have concocted, generated slightly artificially in order to sell certain types of products which will only work in certain circumstances because what is actually a street app because i don't think it, it's not busking is it that's something completely different the, these tricks that dealers are selling as street magic tricks are the sort of thing they would imagine if they were to buy it that david blaine or dynamo um, people of that ilk would perform in the street but that's not actually really happening anywhere, is it? Unless you happen to have a camera crew following you around and you stop people in the street or 
actual dems are done in the street quite often at night aren't they and they they show the magic to young people who go nuts when they see it and all the rest of it but does it outside of those artificial artificially created scenarios does street magic actually exist are there people out there who in some way or other earn magic performing in the street and i say as i say i'm not talking about busking here because i feel that is a completely different type of show. This is more a sort of walkabout performance outside. Other people who in some way wander down the street and with outdoor outside cafes, people sitting there and they walk up to them and they, they do some magic and then try and get tips off them. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to this. But I do wonder whether street magic is really is actually a thing or, or whether it's put up Emperor's New Clothes. We all pretend we know what it is. We all uh, accept that, oh yes, this, is, this magic is suitable for street magic, without ever thinking, is there such a thing at all? Because I, I'm really not sure there is, at least perhaps not in commercial terms. I mean, there may be people who like to carry stuff around and if they're out on the beach somewhere, they, they will show people tricks. I don't know. That, that's fine, but that's that's not a... That I wouldn't define that as being street magic. That's just impromptu magic you, that can be done anywhere. But it sounds more uh, exciting uh, to call it street magic, whereas if you just call it impromptu magic, it can be done anywhere. It doesn't exactly get the heart racing, does it? But if you say, oh, this is a street magic, it's underground stuff for street performance, then it all, all sounds a lot more exciting perhaps to younger people who, who think that street magic actually is a thing. The performance of magic is, I suppose, by definition, a social activity. You know, if you're doing a, a performance for a spectator or a group of spectators, then for the few minutes of that show, you and they form a group, a social group, in which you present some impossible things and they in interact with you and are amazed by hopefully what you do. And it's an experience that you all enjoy, should all enjoy together. So it's very social. It creates conversation and amazement and applause and laughter. It's a wonderful, unifying thing. But the rest of the time, when you're not actually performing, but you're studying magic or you're practicing it or getting stuff together that you hope to perform one day, the rest of the process is actually quite a lonely one in many ways, isn't it? Because most of the time we learn and develop our magic on our own. Now, of course, if you belong to a magic club, you can go down the magic club and you can perhaps share with some of your colleagues there a little bit of what you're up to. But often time at magic meetings is sort of time when you can discuss things like that because of the formal program that's going on that evening. It may be very short, so you don't get an awful lot of unfettered time in which to, to discuss something that you want to. You can get together with a magic colleague or colleagues, of course, um, but again, how often do you actually do that? How often do you get together and discuss new tricks or things that you're working on? For a lot of people, I suspect, hardly at all. And so this, this process of trying to get better with magic, trying to produce effects that you can perform really well, is and does require self-evaluation. It's something that you have to decide whether you're on the right path or not. And this process of self-evaluation, of looking to see what you're doing and are you doing it 
in the right way or effectively enough is actually very difficult. I mean, you can film yourself and sit back and watch it. That's a good way to do it, of course. But you have to have a certain self-analysis. You have to have the capacity to do that. And some people, I think, probably don't have that. They, they, they have, perhaps don't have enough experience to look at themselves performing something and think, well, actually, that could be improved by doing this, this and this. They look at it and think, well, that's all right then. And I think you can you can see that there are times that people don't have the ability to self-criticise when you see certain competition acts, particularly ones where there are no heats in order to eliminate the worst acts and only send on through to the finals the best ones. And there have been many occasions in the past where acts that clearly were under-rehearsed and under-thought through have got through onto the stage or into a close-up competition and bombed terribly as a result of this lack of self-evaluation. So, so I think it's a really important thing. And if you don't have the facility, then I think if you're serious about getting better with the magic that you do, then you really do need to find other ways to get some critique. Now, some clubs, of course, they have, well, sometimes they call it criticism night, which is perhaps an unfortunate way of expressing it because it sounds like it's negative. But a, a, a night when you can bring along work in progress and perform it, then people can give their opinion. That's OK, except sometimes you will either get the opinion of somebody who has a louder voice than anybody else and who hogs the high limelight trying to tell you how they would do it. Or you get so many different opinions that, you know, you come away even more confused than you were before you started. But certainly one or two people who you trust and who you can show things to is, I think, a very good uh, thing to do because it can stop you really going down the wrong route because sometimes we get so involved, let's say, with either a plot or possibly more likely with a method that we, that we fail to realise that the end result of using that method, well, firstly, it's not the, not the best method, but also that the end result just isn't worth it. It's, it's too complex, perhaps, just not very magical. And so if you don't have somebody who can sit back and as you're actually performing it live can say to you, yeah, I'm confused about what you're supposed to be doing now. There is a, there is a risk, I think, that with no self-evaluation at all, you can progress a very long way down the wrong path only to discover at the end of it that you've got something that wasn't worth the time and effort. So self-evaluation is something that I think we all need to take quite seriously. Now, there are certain tricks or moves or props even, which have been around for quite a long time, invented perhaps decades ago, and which people now refer to as being public domain. And what this basically mean, as you, means, as you probably know, is that it's considered no longer to be the property of the inventor, in a sense, although they may be credited, but that others can take it at will and just use it. And in many cases, actually market effects either using that prop or based on the idea behind it without having to pay any royalty or anything else to the originator. And it, the excuse is given is, well, it's public domain. And a keto box, for instance, is considered to be public domain. It's been around a very long time. The inventor's not around anymore, so therefore everybody feels free to use it. But there are lots of other things too, like the Elmsley Count. It's a ubiquitous move. So many packet tricks have been based on it. 
and it's called the Elmsley Count. Actually, he called it the Ghost Count, but it's called the Elmsley Count in deference to the person who invented it, but it's considered public domain and that a packet trick that needs it is going to use it because that works the best in order to do the trick. So I just wondered at what point does an object or a move, a prop or whatever it might be, even a presentation, at what point does it, one minute it's not public domain, next minute, oh, there you go, it's public domain. Is it all to do with simply the length of time? You know, you get to 50 years, say, and then it goes click. All right, now it's public domain. No, that, I've never heard that actually said as a thing. I mean, it might be true that it's anything that was invented a long time ago. There may be a point at which people say, oh, that was invented so long ago, it's public domain now. Or is it that the inventor is no longer with us? So therefore, if he's not here to take a royalty, then it's now public domain and it can be used. But... I just don't know where the line is drawn. I, I've never understood how it how it works. And yet you kind of instinctively know which tricks are considered to be public domain. Linking rings. It's, it's a kind of public domain trick, isn't it, really? It's the same method. It's just different variations on the same thing. And anybody feels that they have the right to take and use it. So if somebody else's, um, for instance, has a presentation, for instance, a particular way of doing something, does that ever become public domain? Or does, or does it always remain the, the signature piece of a particular performer? Are props more likely to become public domain than moves? That moves are not so much likely to be considered public domain. I mean, one way to find out what public domain tricks actually consist of is to go into a normal bookshop go into the pastimes and hobbies and leisure section and find a few magic books that have been um, produced in order to appeal to basically young kids or the lay public. And you will see in all these books, a lot of the time, the tricks that are being explained, or by, albeit possibly in different variations, but basically they are the same tricks. And why? Because they're thought to be public domain. So I think this is an interesting thought. At what point does a trick become public domain? Can a trick that, that where the, the inventor is still alive and still using it, but has been around for a long time, can that thing still be considered public domain? I think probably not, can it? Because if someone was to take, say, one of my envelopes and produce, take the idea produce the envelope, create a routine using it, and then sell it without any reference to me, then they say, well, it's been around for 30 years. It's public domain. Well, it, I wouldn't feel that it was. I thought, well, hang, oh, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. You didn't even ask. And there have been occasions where people have asked. They've said, look, I, I've got this idea with one of your props or an idea similar to yours. Do you mind if I use it? And because they've had the politeness to ask, and usually, no, I don't mind, because they asked and didn't just assume that whatever it is they, they wanted to use was public domain because it had been around for 35 years. So I'd be fascinated to know if there is a definition of when something becomes public domain. Because if it was a bit clearer, then it might make the, the, the task of choosing which things we are allowed to and not allowed to use so much easier. 
I recently had the pleasure of watching, for the purposes of writing a magic review in Magic Scene magazine, the Mark Paul Masterclass that Vanishing Ink put on recently. And I've been a fan of Mark's for, for quite a long time. I've been an admirer of the way that he does things. But it was the first time, I think, that I'd ever attended a lecture of his. And this was three hours worth of of lecture input, if you like, from Marco over two um, one and a half hour sections. And there was a question and answer as the third one, as is always the format with the Vanishing Inks Masterclasses. But the first two sections in particular were, were absolutely fascinating because Mark being a, a full-time professional for many years, working on for corporate events and also cruise ships and so on, his attention to detail that was that is required if you want to be successful in those actually quite difficult marketplaces was was there for all to see in fact i think he only went through three or four different routines in this three hours and i expect some people thought oh, well there aren't many tricks there but that's really not the point because the wealth of tips and advice and information and and attention to detail on every aspect of the performance not just the mechanics of how do you do the trick but presentation how you stand what angles you take literally how you place something or position something on your table to make when you pick it up again make sure it's in the right orientation the, and the right way to make it simple for you to do what you need to do in, as part of the method for the trick all of this was absolutely brilliant it was so good and it's it's lovely because in a masterclass situation i think the, the the good lecturers anyway understand that they have got the the time to be a little bit indulgent with their audience and give them the minute detail that sometimes make all the difference to a trick just being good and being absolutely great and it's time that when you do a normal lecture, uh, say at a magic convention or in a club room, you, you really don't get enough time. You know, if, it, if a club room lecture is hour to an hour and a half, two hours at absolute tops, you, you really don't have the time sometimes to go into tremendous depth. And also, if somebody is paying to come and see you do a masterclass, it implies presumably, that they have a particular interest in you and in, in his case in mentalism and the sort of mentalism that he would be uh, going to, to demonstrate and to show is of interest to the people going. So he can afford to be a bit slower with it and go into the detail. Whereas in a club room where people have just turned up because, well, it's a club night. Oh, Mark Paul's lecturing. Oh, OK. Sometimes you feel that if it's not the core interest of most of the people in the room, that to go into minute detail about one particular important but nevertheless rather niche aspect of the trick that you're trying to explain might not go down so well. So uh, that's where the, the masterclass, as I say, I think is, is absolutely fabulous. And I really, really enjoyed listening to him. He's, he's, um, his thinking is very joined up. It's very coherent. And I love the way that Clearly, over the years, as he explained how he used to do things and how he now does them, that his magic as a regular performer has not remained static. He performs and learns from his performances and has tweaked and changed, as all good 
creators and, and performers do in order to get every last little ounce of impact out of the performance that he does for the lay people. And sometimes this might be a small change, sometimes quite a major change, but it, a change nonetheless. And I was talking, as you know, earlier in the podcast about self-evaluation. And this is where self-evaluation for a pro is really important. How can I make, after a show, thinking back and thinking, how could I have made that better? Would it have been more impactful if I'd done X, Y, and Z instead of A, B, C? And Mark has clearly done that. So if you haven't seen the Mark Paul lecture, and incidentally, even if you're not, I'm not a particularly a mentalist. I do a few lightweight mental items in my show, but I, I wouldn't class myself in any way as a sort of majoring on mentalism at all. But I found that not just the, the material, but his thinking, that was what interested me. And his thought processes to, to the way he turned his, his creativity towards managing his audiences and the technical side of what he needed to do to make it all easy and, and strong in effect and in presentation, that in itself was enough. Never mind the tricks. I, don't, I probably I will never do the tricks, but I learned a lot anyway. So I do recommend the Mark Paul Masterclass, which you can get in Vanishing Ink. It'll be three hours well spent of your time. Now, with the rare exception of a very few people who actually believe that the magic that we do is real, yes, there are one or two, uh, sad to say, there, everybody else, when you go to entertain them, they kind of know going in that you're going to try and fool them and that you're going to use a method that they probably are not going to understand. And hopefully it'll be fun, uh, but hopefully it's also going to be fooling. And the lay audience understands this. You go to a magic show expecting, hopefully, perhaps, to laugh, to be entertained, but essentially they're expecting to be fooled and that they know that you're going to do things that they will not be able to understand. And so there's almost like an unofficial contract between you as the performer, as the magician, and the audience who are watching, that this is what is going to happen. I'm going to come along, I say, I'm going to do things that, you, that are secret, that you won't know how I'm doing it, and you are going to sit there and hopefully be amazed. That's the contract. And what I've come to realise over the years is that there are different levels of acceptance of this contract amongst lay people, because not everybody completely and utterly buys into this. Now, there are a lot of people who thoroughly enjoy watching magic. They, they totally embrace this contract they, with you. They, they, they go in there hoping to laugh and enjoy it. They don't actually care that much how the trick's done, as long as they're having a really good time for it, with it. And as long as they can tell other people afterwards, oh, so it's amazing magician, he did this, this and this, and tell the tale afterwards of the miracles that they've seen. And those people are a joy for us to perform to because they make no demands. They just accept the contract that you're going to try and fool them and they're going to be amazed. And then you have a second section of people, hopefully less in number than the first set. And these people who, they kind of partially agree with the contract. They say, well, OK, I know you're going to come and you're going to try and fool me. And, and, and that's OK, but I just want you to know that while I probably am going to have a certain amount of regard for your skills, I want you to be aware that I'm not easily impressed uh, and that I will probably try to work out how you're doing these tricks. 
you know, not, not a big deal, but don't think I'm going to be completely easy here. You, you may, you're going to have to work to impress me. So in every audience, I think there are some of those. And then there's the third set. These are the people who absolutely do not wish to be fooled. They take your contract, they rip it up and they throw it in the fire because they are determined that they are going to burn your hands. They are going to watch you like a hawk and not be distracted by your clever patter. And they are going to attempt to work out how you do your magic. And even if they don't know, they are still going to turn to their partner and say, well, of course, that was obvious, wasn't it? He just did this, this and this. And we'll try and get some sort of reflected glory on the fact that apparently they know how all of your tricks are done. Usually those are the smallest subsection, but they are the diff most difficult one, aren't they, <laughs> to deal with because they are difficult to entertain because they don't want to be entertained. And then, of course, you have children, children who don't know there's a contract at all because the world is full of miracles and you're just another one of those miracles. And if something's not in your right hand, then just by logic, they'll tell you it's in your left hand. It's not because they're being difficult. It's just that it's logical. They take everything at face value. And that's why entertaining children is very different from entertaining adults. Children don't have a contract. The adults kind of do. And that's where that why you need different types of approaches and different types of material often in order to satisfy both of those two groups. Well, thank you for listening to this summary edition of the podcast. It is still sunny outside, so I think I am actually going to stop this now and I'm going to get a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and pop outside and sit under an umbrella for half an hour. And uh, if you're somewhere where you can do the same thing, I wish you well. And if you're going on holiday this month, have a good time. And I'll hopefully see you back here again in August to do it all over again. Have a good month. Bye for now.